Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerd at Recaps. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And joining us, as always, is Peter Sagel. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So we're back. We're recapping movies from 1999. You might be wondering why 99. Mostly it was just that like we were looking through 90s movies and we were like, wow, a lot of stuff came out in this particular year. So we thought it would be fun. Today we are recapping The Matrix, which, for those of you who want to keep track, came out March 31st, 1999. Yes, it did. And it's also an interesting movie to choose to start this off because it is explicitly set in 1999. (laughs) And at one point, of course, uh, somebody, namely Agent Smith, uh, refers to it as the height of your civilization. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. I feel like that's a great opportunity for me to mention. I felt like the over enunciation in this film is extremely intense. I don't know what you are talking about, Ms. Johnson. I used to do, I used to walk around uh, and do Agent Smith all the time. And in the intervening years, I have somewhat gotten rusty. But my wife and I have been trying to polish up my Agent Smith impersonation. And we discovered something that if you start doing Agent Smith and you don't focus on it, you start doing the funny voice we attribute to our dog. (laughs) (laughs) It's very similar is what I'm saying. Wait, is my dog a sentient program? I don't have a dog. It's possible. We don't know. This could all be an illusion. I like I like the over-enunciation of the agents in particular because it reminds me of the fact that human uh, speech sounds messier and muddier than a program would speak. A program would speak with perfect mm. computer-like diction because it is not having to think of the words as it is saying them. Right. It's a it's a computer. You're listening to a computer talk. Yes. I actually, I mean, I don't know if we're leaping ahead, but I've been obsessed with Hugo Weaving's voice as Agent Smith for years. You have a social security number, you pay your taxes, and you help your landlady carry out her garbage. (laughs) And I've looked into it, and apparently he decided that he would base his speech on, like, a newscaster. He tried to be like Mm -hmm. Walter Cronkite, because he tried to be, as you say, sort of a, a... a, a almost inhuman voice of authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a platonic ideal of authority. Yeah. 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 Huh. So, Peter, did you watch this movie on a break from uh, Drama Camp? <laughs> no, I did Drama <laughs> Camp. Please. Playwriting work. Playwriting festivals Greta. where I was a qualified playwright. I was a grown up. Actually, you know what? Before you even answer that question, uh, can I task you with giving everyone a quick summary of what's going on in The Matrix? Uh, you want to just sort of sum it up, like what the movie is yeah, about? Yeah, let's sum it up. Yeah. So The Matrix is a movie that came out in 1999. Obviously, it was made by the Wachowski brothers, now called the Wachowski siblings, because I believe they mm-hmm. both transitioned. Yes. Who uh, grew up with comic books and manga and science fiction and alternative sort of philosophies. And as one of them once said, they put everything they knew and loved into this one movie, ranging from, you know, uh, intense psychological insights to kung fu. 
Uh, our hero is a young man, played by Keanu Reeves, uh, who has been walking around feeling there's something deeply wrong with the world, and he discovers that, in fact, he's right, that this world that they live in is, in fact, a computer-generated simulation to keep everybody a slave, and that he, this mild-mannered computer programmer, is, in fact, the savior <laughs> come to save the civilization. And most of the movie is about him learning this. It's one of the interesting things about the movie, which is the biggest chunk of it is exposition. Like, let me tell you the world we're in. Let me tell you how it got that way. Let me tell you how it works. And let me tell you who you are in this world, which is why so many of Keanu Reeves' lines in the movie are things like, that can't be true. And (laughs) I don't believe it. And how does that work? And of course, (laughs) And then a lot of times people respond to him by saying, just listen, because I have more exposition to do. <laughs> yes, it's amazing. I mean, there's a lot of things to say about this movie, but one of them is that there is no greater example of how to keep exposition interesting than this movie. It is. <laughs> they did. That's funny. I disagree with that, actually. I'm sorry. I thought it was extremely boring. That what? Extremely boring. Yeah. Oh, my I know. Goodness. This is actually the first time I managed to stay awake for the entire thing. I've tried many times since 1999. And I like I the way I got through this movie watching it on Saturday was by also working on my ancient Greek alphabet because I signed up for ancient Greek class. And I was like, I would literally rather be doing ancient Greek. Wow. What? I'm, I, I love this I know. movie. I know. That's I know. amazing because I, I went back and I read some of the reactions to the movie when it first came out and before it became this huge cultural thing, that sort of weird moment before it took off. And even the negative reviews were like, huh, you know, it's it's not as deep as it thinks it is and it's kind of silly, but boy, is it exciting. But you didn't even go that far. No, I mean, I thought the special effects were super cool. Yeah. But like, I don't know, it kind of felt to me... It was interesting seeing at the end, it's a Rage Against the Machine song that we like go out on. Yes. And Wake it kind up. of feels to me like Rage Against the Machine or like Tool, where it's like, I get that a bunch of people love this and it's and it's well done. It's like arguably excellent, but it's just not. It's like resoundingly not for me. Uh, I, I'm going to guess, and I've known you for a while, Greta, so mm-hmm. this isn't, this isn't a, too much of a leap, but I'm going to guess... <laughs> That at no point in your life were you a 15-year-old nerdy boy who felt like he didn't fit in. Am I right about that? Well, yes. I have never been a 15-year-old boy. But I also, I mean, I love engaging with questions about, like, what is real and... That's why I'm confused, Greta, is you like a good philosophical argument. You know, like, there are a lot of really interesting themes in there. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of, like knowledge that you can't turn away from even if you desperately want to because it is so true like i think that's gorgeous but this movie just like does not do it for me wow at all you asked me like do i remember when i saw it yes yeah yeah i saw this movie uh the week it came out i was in washington dc for a wait wait don't tell me event i went with a colleague of mine lorna white and we went to this theater Mm -hmm. near dupont circle in washington and we sat there and we watched the movie and it was over and Lorna was like, well, that was fun. And I couldn't speak because the 15-year-old boy still deeply inside me, still buried beneath the receding hairline and the paunch, 
was happier than he had ever been. Mm -hmm. This was the movie that I would have given anything to see when I was 15. It is the perfect nerdy outcast 15 year old boy movie. And I was able to remember that young man well enough to just love it. (laughs) So Trisha, when did you first see it? Do you remember? I think I probably saw it pretty early on. I I liked it a lot from the start and still do. I think it's got flaws. I think it's long. I find the sort of, um, you know, shoot 'em up parts of it actually the boring parts. But yeah. all the exposition I am here for mm-hmm. because I love talking about this stuff. And I think, you know, simulation theory is having a moment again. If not, I don't know if it ever went away between this point and uh, when what? Nick Bostrom put out the paper in 2003 and then we've kind of all been talking about this in some circles ever since and even before. So having a a cool movie talk about these sort of crazy uh, philosophical ideas that I liked in college, especially I'm a huge fan of this movie. I think it's, I think it's gotta be up there on my top list. I mean, it's, you know, it's no hook, but it's like, it's a great movie. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, what is ultimately (laughs) nothing really is hook. Thank God. <laughs> the rules of the world, I think, are very clearly established and make sense in this first one, which is hard to do in a story that's this complex. Um, what do you mean, first one? There aren't any others. Mm. <laughs> right. We are in 1999. Yes. So there are no more. There are no other Matrix movies. <laughs> no other matrices. <laughs> I do think that part of why I'm forgiving of this movie having so much setup and exposition is that I know and the filmmakers knew that there were going to be more. So in the same way that the first Harry Potter book and movie, it's a lot of like, okay, so magic, here's some things you need to know. Mm. And then it kind of, once the world is established, can go forward. Every series that is a a well done and actually planned to be a series franchise often spends more time on the first, in the first movie on exposition and then moves forward. So that part didn't bother me, but it is heavy. You raise something interesting, which is one way of looking at this movie is this movie is Harry Potter with hot chicks and guns. Like, ugh, gross. (laughs) (laughs) He's Rhaegar in the streets and Varys in the sheets. He's Peter Sable. It's absolutely true. (laughs) My hobby, my hobby, of course, is extracting more interesting sounds of disgust from you, Greta, and today was a good day. Yeah, this is, yeah, this, yeah. (laughs) I mean, we've talked about this before in context of other movies and TV shows, but the, the idea that you aren't who you think you are, much to your excitement, that the boring life that you think you have is an illusion and you are Mm -hmm. really a hero. I mean, Harry Potter is the chosen one. Neo is the one. Uh, I I mean, and I think the first Harry Potter book came out around the same time, so it's not like they influence one another, but it's such a common fantasy, especially Mm -hmm. of boys. and, And I'm actually interested to know if you ladies related to it in that way because I've always associated this yearning to be a hero that you're not really the pasty computer guy who you think you are I've always assumed that with insecure boys like me and if, if, if it was also true of insecure girls at that age, I would love to hear it. Or if not, what the equivalent fantasy was. Well, um, I think partly what 
bugs me or maybe worries me about this movie is how much of that actually feeds into toxic masculinity stuff. Oh, you know, yeah. I think about I think about incels, I think about proud boys, I think about like a largely, you know, a, a group of generally older white guys who feel like they have been overlooked and should be the heroes. And I think that's how you end up with, you know, violent militias and stuff, right? Like, I think this feeds directly into Hang on, that. But is that the fault of the Wachowskis who are making a movie about a mild-mannered computer programmer who lives in an alternate universe? Like, that's a lot to lay at the feet of the Matrix. I am, I am not blaming the Matrix. I'm not blaming the Wachowskis. I'm just saying I see a very strong connection between a lot of the mood and the vibe of this movie and and what I'm seeing and just the whole like conspiracy theory this is not real what is a fact like I wonder how much of that can be correlated back to this movie oh you're yeah. you're terrifyingly right yeah. right <laughs> yeah no you are I, I mean I, I I saw the movie so many times it was the, literally the first DVD I ever bought was The Matrix and I love it and I've, 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 friends of mine have given Matrix-related gifts to me because they know how much I love this movie, but I hadn't seen it in a long time, maybe a decade. Mm-hmm. So I watched it, and the movie holds up, unlike some of the other movies we've talked about. The special effects are still great, yeah. et cetera, yeah. et cetera. The performances are still great. Uh, but looking at this movie from the perspective of where we are now, where literally the phrase red-pilling versus yeah. blue pill has become a, 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 I don't know what you want to call it, a slogan of the extreme right wing. How people took this message of this movie and created something extremely dark out of it is really unsettling. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. It was one thing when you're, um, like I said, a 15-year-old kid who's feeling unhappy with the world, doesn't know how he fits in, and and this message of, no, you're really cool, and you're a hero, and you're going to fight with guns and learn kung fu, and this incredibly hot chick in leather pants is going to fall in love with you for no particular reason. That's great, because it's an adolescent fantasy, given perfect, perfect form by this movie. There's no better version of it with those particular flavors. But then to see how in the years since it's been taken by real grown-up men and the ideas and tropes to be used as a way of looking at the world, at the real world, and deciding the real world is against you and you're the only one who knows the secret that you're really a hero and that everybody else in the world is part of the system and thus can be killed... Yeah, with no guilt is really yeah. terrifying. Well, and I think that's partly like I, you know, as we like, I love a philosophical quandary. I love wondering what reality is. I, I think I would find this storyline to be much more intriguing if it didn't eventually devolve into just like a shoot 'em up movie. You know? Yeah. Sadly, that's. I mean, you know, that's part of the fantasy. Yeah. Which, yeah, okay, I, I could complain about that too, but let's get to some voicemails first. Um, let's listen to, here's our old buddy Jonah in Chicago. Hey, Nerdette and Peter, it's Jonah from Chicago. Glad you're back. A lot of people in my parents' generation tell the story of the moment they saw Star Wars and just how amazed they were by the special effects and how different it was in any movie they'd ever seen. The only movie where I really kind of felt anything like that um, was when I saw The Matrix my freshman year of college. 
And I just remember the beginning when Carrie Ann Moss did that amazing 3D kick. And I didn't even know that was possible. Rewatching it, the first act of the movie is, is really terrific. Um, pretty much up until they uh, go meet the Oracle. And then it's just kind of a fun popcorn movie. Anyway, glad uh, you're back. And uh, please review more movies that Peter hates. <laughs> sorry (laughs) better luck next time on that front i guess um speaking of the oracle we got another voicemail that is about the oracle so i think we may as well listen to it now this is mary hi greta and trisha and peter this is mary johnson from fairbanks alaska calling about the matrix it's my mom yes i have a lot of complaints about it um especially i would say uh the so-called love affair between neo and trinity and the fact that her kiss somehow brings him back to life. Um, however, I do love the Oracle. And especially, I love this quote from her. Here, have a cookie. Take a cookie. I promise by the time you're done eating it, you'll feel, you'll right, feel right as, as rain. rain. Thanks for the podcast. Bye. I mean, Mary Johnson may be the Oracle. It's true. <laughs> Like if if I'm living in a simulation, Mary Johnson in my universe is the Oracle and her cookies do have magic powers. Maybe that's why I'm so annoyed by the movie. <laughs> also, is it kind of weird, Greta, that your mother sounds younger than you do? <laughs> I think it's because she's a little nervous. Oh. So she gets a little higher uh-huh. pitch than she would be normally. But uh, it's interesting that other voicemail, the voicemail you played before about how... Yeah, Jonah. Yeah, but Jonah, mm-hmm. it, it's absolutely true. I mean, I was like, I, I was an old man already. I was in my 30s when I saw this movie and I still felt that way. And mm-hmm. it is one of those movies that changed the game in terms of visual effects. Um, I mean, there, I saw a thing, uh, something on like Wikipedia trivia, that that specific shot of Trinity leaping into the air, the action freezing as the mm-hmm. camera turns around mm-hmm. her, and then she begins yeah. that shot, which was mind-blowing at the time, mm-hmm. uh, had been referenced or parodied in like 200 movies and TV shows in the next oh, four yeah. years. Mm-hmm. And I remember one specifically in the movie Shrek, for example. It was such, <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Less impressive when it's animation, but still. <laughs> and one of the things I love about the Wachowskis is, I mean, there's a lot of things I love about them as expressed in this movie, the completeness of the world we've already talked about, how well, th- how well thought it all is, but also that they, like, we want this movie to look a certain way. We want this kind of shot. We want this kind of effect that wasn't yeah. possible when they conceived of it. And they went out and found the people who can create the technology to make it real, which is so cool. The camera work in general is just, you know, like even watching Neo like running upstairs in super narrow hallways and feeling how claustrophobic it is. Like the the way they track all of that action, I will say, I think is phenomenal. We talked before about how there's this generation of filmmakers like J.J. Abrams uh, who grew up watching all these science fiction movies and so on and so forth and being dissatisfied Mm -hmm. and wanting to fix things that they didn't like. This is absolutely true about the Wachowskis. One of the things they didn't like about the movies they had seen growing up was the fight scenes because American fight scenes are always so chopped. They're always so edited. You have no idea what's going on. It's all kinetic. Bam, 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 cut, 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 cut. You have no idea what just happened. So they wanted to do a movie in which the fight scenes were shot in a Hong Kong style in which there are very few cuts in which the actors actually have to execute all the moves in order and look real. And they, to do that, sent their actors to like a four-month training camp with the of uh, the Hong Kong based uh, fight choreographer, and because that's what they wanted, and that's what mm. they were going to get, no matter what. That's very cool. Should we listen to another voicemail? Here's PJ. Like the great epics, like 
the Odyssey and Beowulf, it asks profound philosophical questions about who we are, how do we see our world, how do we fit into it, what responsibility do we have to it. Uh, and it's just, it's brilliant. And I also love, as a side note, the fact that the Lego movie is totally the Matrix for kids. Whoa, Thanks, PJ. keep up the great work. <laughs> I can't wait for the rest of 1999. Whoa. Whoa. He's totally right. It is. It is. What's the Lego movie? It's about a boring young. It's about a boring guy who ends up being dragged into this world by a hot babe who can fight martial arts, and turns out that he is what? What is it, the master constructor? Is that the phrase they use? I can't remember, but I do remember really loving the Lego movie. The Lego the movie is great. I have no problem <laughs> with the Lego movie. But yeah, and the Lego movie was obviously influenced by, by a lot, like so many other movies, by The Matrix because the heroine of the Lego movie. She even has like a, a fun, like, like Trinity-like nickname that she insists on because it makes her sound cooler. I mean, oh, yeah. anyway. <laughs> so did y'all uh, observe the Christian undertones of this film with like thinking about Trinity and Neo being the chosen one? He dies, he comes back. There's a lot of Jesus stuff in there. When when the guy <laughs> knocks on the door and he eventually, at the beginning of the movie, when he wakes him up, right? He says, mm -hmm. Nia, he says, you're my personal Jesus Christ. It's pretty overt. Uh, yeah. Although, you know, you can talk about like the parallels with the Christ story. You can talk a lot about uh, the Joseph Campbell hero, the thousand faces yep. and the hero's journey mm -hmm, mm -hmm. going into the underworld, the discovery that, you know, the getting, getting tools from a mentor, getting skills, uh, you know, and then having to die. He go, all the heroes in Joseph Campbell's construction have to go to the underworld and return just like Jesus, mm -hmm. just like Neo. It's all there, baby. The getting skills thing, like that felt like very, like a, it was too easy. Like, I don't know. It felt like he didn't have to actually learn that much to me. Well, they make it, they make it very easy, which again, I think is part of the fantasy. I mean, there, like there's the, yeah. what's the, what's one of the most famous lines in this movie after woe and I know Kung Fu. Exactly. <laughs> and again, imagine how that might've felt to like this. I, I keep referring to this 15 year old nerdy boy uh -huh. meeting myself <laughs> who, who has dreams of like physical power and dreams of strength. Imagine how exciting it would be just to lie in a couch and have something plugged into your brain. Yeah, yeah again, <laughs> right. I'm here for this. You close your eyes, your eyelids flicker, uh, and then you wake up <laughs> oh, like, I know yeah. Kung Fu. That's and, funny. And there's a funny line that uh, the I think the character uh, Tank has, uh, the, the operator, where he says, oh, he's a machine. He just can suck this up. As if his ability mm -hmm. to lie there and get this knowledge injected into his brain <laughs> is itself impressive, right? <laughs> no, he's just he's just getting cool. But he's better at it than everybody else somehow. So, Trisha, you liked that that part, huh? Well, yeah, because that's also... Also, it feels like a fast-forwarding of where technology is headed in a way that I think is interesting to then think mm -hmm. about and... You know, the, the idea that we're able to now augment our reality in certain ways. Like, even just since 1999, mm -hmm. the the speeding up of technology and the way that, you know, take, I don't know, something as simple as uh, language, for example. We're, we're eliminating the need for people to actually learn languages because the computers that are integrated into our lives, right now still mostly for us, it's a phone that's next to us, but very soon that will just be implanted and interacting with us in a really uh, more seamless way. We'll have a universal translator in our head because we have one in our phones. 
And so like we're headed there very quickly. And so the idea that you can just plug in and your brain can connect to these programs and then you have that information, it's the same way I don't have to remember a phone number anymore because it's in my phone. It's just an evolution of that idea. And that's one of the reasons the movie holds up is because they saw all that coming. And now, as you say, Tricia, it's here. <laughs> well, and how many friends do you have during the pandemic who have disappeared into Animal Crossing or I was about to some say. other video game mm-hmm. that lets them replicate in a cartoonish, friendly, not uncanny valley way, but lets them disappear into a world that is basically a simulation because the outside world is scary and hard. Don't you think narratively, though, there's a distinction between getting to choose that and just in, in being part of the programming? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's why I think the most interesting character is Cypher. Right. Hmm. Say more. Because I think if this movie didn't have Cypher in it, I would like it a lot less. Because it's really? a very f- why? Because it's a very fair question whether you should actually want to live in the quote real world or just stay in the matrix. Because as imperfect as the matrix is, because as uh, the agent says at the end of the movie, we tried to give you a utopia and your brains rejected it, which I think is fascinating. Yes. But also the idea that after nine years of fighting for a meager amount of freedom and quote-unquote reality, he's like, give me a steak that tastes delicious because I don't care if it's real or not. The way my synapses are firing, I get pleasure or pain Mm. either way. And I think that is fascinating. I'm pretty sure we have that clip, actually. Yeah, here's the great Joe Pantoliano explaining the benefits of the Matrix. I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth... The Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? (sighs) Ignorance is bliss. And you get that shot of the harp player. Yeah, that right there is what makes it all so much more interesting to me because now everybody is, in a way, making a choice. Because if he could try to get back in, then so could the rest of them. So they are choosing something as opposed to it just being thrust upon them. Right. And Although he does have to kill his friends. And I think it's a very fair question whether you would prefer the world that they're trying to navigate to just blindly living in the Matrix. Right. Which, again, but, uh, you could argue, those of us who are slipping into these virtual worlds all the time or playing our D&D or doing whatever, that like escapism has a point of diminishing returns where there are a lot of us who are spending time developing and creating these alternate realities and then those of us who spend time in them and then those are all ours and that's all attention not being spent to improving the world that we say, quote unquote, is real that we're living in. So, like, I love how deep this stuff gets how, and how quickly you can go there. It does. It really does, which is why the movie is not just, you know, another, you know, gunfight adventure. It's got all this stuff going on. It's interesting, though, Tricia, that you're right. His perspective is a valid one. It's like, why would you want to be miserable when you can just be blissfully happy just by being living in this world of illusion? But, of course, he's the villain. That, that that perspective is presented in the movie as the absolute wrong one. The movie says you need to, as the final song says, wake up. That, you know, you have to be, I mean, yes, this is the desert of the real, which is a phrase, I think, from one of the books that they mm-hmm. used. But you're supposed to be there. That that 
knowledge, that sort of enlightenment is what we're all supposed to be searching for and fighting for, even if the real is miserable, which again immediately starts going towards some very dark places if you apply that to the real world. Because there are a lot of very unpleasant people out there right now in 2020 who are saying, yes, the real world is terrible and a lot of people have to die in order for us to reach the real world, but that's just the cost. So it's all spooky now. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, oh, before oh. we move on, I just this is something I have never said aloud, but there's a thing in this movie that drives me crazy. And be, I'll say it now because it's related to that character, Joe Pantoliano, okay? Mm-hmm. And this has always driven me crazy. There's a scene in which Neo walks up to him. There's still, he, Neo has just woken up and he's sort of adjusting to his life in the Nebuchadnezzar, the ship, the hovercraft. And he walks up and Joe Pantoliano, Cypher, is, is, is sitting there monitoring the Matrix. And he says, so is that the Matrix? You can't see what's going on. You can just see the data. And Cypher says, and I wrote it down, but I can't find it. He says something to the effect of, <laughs> oh, our processors work for the construct, i.e. their own programs, but it can't handle all the data in the matrix. matrix. Okay. But this is what he says. The image translators work for the construct program. Our processors work for the construct. And I'm like, you're stressing the wrong word. <laughs> he should have said really? they work for the construct, that's, but not they work the... for the construct. And mm. literally every time I see that scene, I twitch and I'm like, why didn't they reshoot the scene <laughs> or just do some ADR so he stresses the right word? <laughs> I'm sorry. No. I did like the construct because it made me think of Janet's void. <laughs> from I just want to say, I, I got I to share something with the listeners. So we're looking at a screen, which is Justin's screen, where he can fire off sound clips. And uh-huh. as I was talking, his arrow starts going up and down among the, the patriarchy jingles. Like, quiet, another <laughs> he's, opinion. He's hovering. Nobody cares, he's still choosing. talking. Nobody cares, but it never really stops him. He's still fucking talking. <laughs> I just had to get that off my chest. Thank you. Yeah, I also really enjoy watching uh, Justin's trigger finger on the patriarchy <laughs> jingles. <laughs> oh my god, that's oh. amazing! A few more voicemails and more on the Wachowskis after the break. Let's listen to another voicemail. Here is Jennifer. Hi, Nerdette. It's Jen from Winnipeg. My weird story about the Matrix is that I went with all my cousins and my siblings on Easter and I fell asleep. And yes, it is loud and I still have to slept through it. I can sleep through any movie. I've slept through tons of super loud, obnoxious movies like Heat and Prissy's Honor and the usual suspects. I did like it, but I just fell asleep. And that's it. Thanks again. Have fun. Wake up. Wake up, Neo. (laughs) Wake up. The Matrix has you. Call her. We have one last voicemail. Let's just listen to it right now. Here's Tommy. This is a good one. Hey, Nerdette and Peter. This is Tommy from New Haven, Connecticut. 
I wanted to leave my comment about uh, The Matrix. Um, first, I just wanted to say a big old thank you to Peter Sagal uh, because he spoke at my school a couple weeks ago, uh, gave a master class to our performing arts students at no charge because he is an absolute gentleman and I believe that everybody should be aware of that. Um, so again, thank you. Uh, and now for my Matrix comment. Whoa. <laughs> okay, thank you. You wanted to play that? That was a pretty good whoa. Well, I wanted to get it out of the You're way. Blowing my cover, Greta. <laughs> it was a good whoa. It, it was, was a, a great it was whoa. a good whoa. It was a good whoa. But what if what what if the listeners find out I'm not such an asshole? Then where where are we? Also, what if every other performing arts school in the country then emails you and is like, "Come talk to our students." Yep, yep. Oh, get ready, Peter. <laughs> the influx. So like I said, looking at this movie, which I still love from the perspective of 2020 and everything that's happened with, as you say, right-wing militias and mm -hmm. toxic masculinity, all that, it's very chilling. That's one way to look back in the movie. But there's another way to look back in the movie, which is, as we referenced, the makers of the movie um, have both, since the movie was made, come out as trans. They're both mm -hmm. living as women now. Mm -hmm. And I was watching the movie and and wondering how that played into it, If 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 the fact that these were made by two trans people was is you could look at the movie from that perspective mm -hmm. there are certain things one thing i found out is that there's a one of the people on the ship who comes into the matrix and dies is named switch she's a woman named switch and i found out didn't know this that the reason they called that character switch was because in the original conception switch in the real world quote unquote on the ship is a man but when he goes into the Matrix, his residual self, his virtual self, the way that he thinks of himself that is reflected in the Matrix is a woman. Yeah. Which is why the character's name Switch. And they decided to X that and use the same actor. And Warner Brothers probably went, ooh, I don't know about that. In 1999. It's hard to say. I, I, I didn't find out why that was dropped, but that was part of their idea, that there was somebody in this movie who in the real world was a man, but if you find out how they see themselves as a woman, which, okay, that's clear. And yeah, clear. there are a couple uh, articles that have come out about the, the idea of the Matrix being essentially a trans allegory. But, but how, do, how exactly does it map? Because that's where I got confused and I wanted your opinion. Trisha, I guess, did you read up on this at all? Well, I guess, Peter, it's a little bit like what you were just saying, which is the idea that we have an inner life and an inner conception of ourselves and an understanding of who we are that, but for the matrix, other people can't see yeah. unless we do things to, you know, ad address our expression and our, um, you know, the way we dress and the way we sort of style ourselves to, to match other people's ideas of what gender we are. Um, and yeah, the, and also just the idea that these ideas are a spectrum and they're reprogrammable that they're not um, they're not hardwired, I guess. That they're part of the software, not the hardware. Yeah. Like there's there's a lot of ways I think you could sort of you know try to semantically make make the the allegory. Yeah, as you said, essentially, your mind identity is stronger than your body identity. Right, and I guess yeah. just talking about it, this this classic tale of the changeling of the person presenting in the world in a way that, that's different than they really are, which I've talked about as a nerd fantasy, the Harry Potter fantasy is also, I'd love to hear, I don't know if there's anybody out there who wants to comment on this, but I'd love to hear from trans people about how that played to them. I mean, mm. did, I mean, when I was a kid and felt nerdy and out of place and I didn't fit in the world, I had these fantasies of being powerful and having abilities. And yes, when when trans kids were young and, and, and were figuring that out, did they see these stories of like, oh, in the real world, I get to be 
a woman, which is what I really am, or in the real world, I get to be a man, which is what I really am. I, I mean, and if it played to them that way as a, as a form of encouragement, I think that would be great. But mm-hmm. it's outside of my experience, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I just think the idea that, um, like you said, Peter, the power that Neo realizes he has, each of us understanding that we had that power, we would each handle it differently. So yeah, some people take away from it that they should use it to... Uh, at whatever cost, get whatever they want, and do it violently. Yes, because other people are all part of the system. But as as is the case with all technology, the technology itself has no good or evil. It has no morality. We do. All of it is an extension of us. Yes, but I don't think the movie really tells us that. You know, I mean, you think about Neo's the hero, and he has a bunch of big guns. He shoots a bunch of people. He's you know? such a bu- there's a, there's a speech in the movie that may be the center of why this movie can and has been used for dark purposes as a metaphor. It's during the scene in which uh, part of the training sequence that takes up most of the second part of the movie. Morpheus has a speech where he says, all these people are in the world, they're, they have all these jobs, they're just living their lives, but they're part of the system. We're trying to save them, mm-hmm. but they're part of the system. And as long as they're part of the system, they can be our enemies. And that, that you know, in the context of the movie, it makes sense because they're explaining how agents can like show up as any person. Any person can become an agent because an agent can invade anybody's consciousness and become that person so they can show up wherever they are, which leads to a very exciting chase sequence at the end, blah, blah, blah. But what it really is, is it's a, it's a way of, it's like a revolutionary's excuse as to why a revolution has got to cost some bodies. You can, you can just hear like Che Guevara telling that to Fidel's like, we just have to kill a lot of people because even though they're innocent, they're part of the system. And mm-hmm. that is so potentially dark and has been used for dark purposes ever since that idea. And it's a, it, well, it's it lo- been used by anyone who called for revolution of any kind, progressive or right wing or whatever. I mean, I watched the trial of the Chicago Seven this weekend too, and you've got scenes in that movie of Abby Hoffman trying to explain to Tom Hayden that there's gonna be some uncomfortable parts of revolution, and that people who are uh, passive in the face of a problem are part of the problem. You hear that from the left as often as the right. Oh, absolutely. And and in fact, you know, th- yes, exactly. There, There's there's right-wing revolutionaries who say we have to get rid of the undesirables, and there are left-wing revolutionaries who say we got to get rid of the apparatchiks of the regime. And it's just all dark. And here it is presented in this movie as like just a revolutionary truth that you have to accept for further enlightenment and to set up some cool action sequences. Well, is that the like really uplifting note we're going to wrap this on? I, oh, no, we can't. I, we can't, I, we can't I, end I think, on that. I mean, my, my question for both of you is not that you had to kill your friends to get back into the Matrix, but you realize the Matrix is real. You are given a choice to stay in uh, quote unquote reality, which is rough. And there's just like weird gloop to eat and it's a mess and seems like kind of a hard slog or you can go back in. What do you do? Ooh, what you're, what you're asking Trisha is red pill or Mm -hmm. blue pill. But it's, it's, you have a little more knowledge than at the point of that choice, because I think that that choice is an unfair one because you don't really, he doesn't really know what he's choosing. Right. When but he makes that choice. In, in and of itself, though, that's an interesting, an interesting moment because he doesn't know, right? Yeah. I believe yeah. you know, what, what, what Morpheus says is something to the effect of there's no going back. If you choose this, everything's gone. 
and he still makes that choice, which is an act of bravery in a weird way. Uh, so, I, it, and it's it's a totally different thing when you say, okay, you get this over here or that over here. What do you want? And he makes a choice to find the truth, no matter the cost, which is an act of heroism. That's funny. I think of it more as hubris than bravery uh, or heroism. Yeah, you I know. know. I, I mean, of course, if he chose the blue pill, the movie would be over. Very short movie. Very short movie. <laughs> Very short movie. Uh, I, I still think, despite everything we've said about how its message has resonated in unpleasant ways and has been taken by unpleasant people for unpleasant purposes, it's still such a cool movie. And the 15-year-old in me, who is still there despite the passage of 20 more years, <laughs> is still thrilled with it and still loves it. And so I'll just end on that. So red or blue pill, though? Uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. I mean, I guess it would be fun to take the red pill, and this may be the problem. Take the red pill, but only if you get to be Neo, right? Because <laughs> if you take the red pill and you end up being like the guy, you know, just this guy who has to swab decks in the Nebuchadnezzar for the rest of your miserable life, yeah, maybe not. That's the problem. The problem yeah. is, is that in the fantasy that this movie appeals to, you, the individual, get to be the hero get to be the one. But there is only one one. And what if it's not you? Then it just sucks. Well, you can also be the arbitrary love interest. You can be the completely arbitrary and unjustified love interest, yes, who just who falls in love with him even though he is in no way lovable. And what, hell, what does he do? I, I, it's interesting because it, my, my, my wife has decided that I need to do something I've never done and watch uh, The Office so we're watching oh. The Office, which is great. And it's so interesting to compare like Jim and Pam, <laughs> right? Who, 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 who for are, years. For years, who are, but are a completely believable couple. And why they like each other is so believable. You understand it. You understand how they feel about each other and why they feel about each other. And you see the, the things in each other that they see. And it makes total sense. And it's beautifully written and acted. And then you see The Matrix. And it's like, the oracle told me that I would fall in love with the one. And I mm -hmm. do. I love you, mm -hmm. even though you hardly say anything. <laughs> And we've never really spent any time together. But she'd been watching him for how long beforehand? Yes, right? which is even creepier. It's creepier. If that was right. a guy in the leather saying yeah, that to no, a woman, I've been good. watching no. you for years no. and I love you, you'd be like, get the hell away from me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me know when you're ready for the article about how Jim is actually an asshole. Uh, you know, let me get through the series. Because <laughs> right now... Right now, I'm very much enjoying uh, yeah. John Krasinski's no, extraordinary charm. But yeah, you can lay that on me later. <laughs> okay, well, I think we should leave it there. We have a lot of other movies on tap for this season. Next week is Blair Witch for Halloween. Which I've never seen. Me either. None of us has seen it. None so of us have seen it? Wow. None of us, no. I don't like spooky movies. I know, me neither. So it'll be, it'll be a fun one. The show is produced by me along with Justin Bull. Our intern is Isabel Carter. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. And our theme music is composed by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. All right. See you next week for Blair Witch, I guess. Oh, my God. Oh, I got to watch it. Oh, I don't like scary <laughs> movies. Uh. <laughs> Hold up. 
Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.